0: Welcome to the Risky Healthcare Business Podcast, where we help you prepare for the future by sharing stories, insights, and skills from expert voices in and around the United States healthcare world, with a mission to inform, educate, and help healthcare organizations and individuals ranging from one-doctor practices to large integrated systems and organizations throughout the dental, medical, and veterinary healthcare industry with risk, while hopefully having some fun along the way. I'm your host, Scott Nelson, a guy that grew up in Ohio and has been working all over the United States during my 20-plus year accounting career in the healthcare industry, with a commitment to accelerating healthcare performance through creativity, not just productivity. Let's dive in. When thinking of risk in healthcare, there can be a tendency to narrow the perspective to life-threatening situations: Ambulance is speeding with lights flashing and sirens blaring. Doctors, nurses, and other professionals running to a location in response to an alert, a code. Someone is having a heart attack, a stroke. There's been a car accident, totally unexpected. But what if the patient was your healthcare business? What if your business suffered an unexpected, shocking event, a cyber or ransomware attack, a lawsuit, doctor or staff departures, financial downturns? How would it respond? Would you or your business survive? A report from the Center for Healthcare Quality Payment Reform found that more than 600 rural hospitals are at risk of closing in 2023. The report found two common contributing factors, persistent financial losses and low financial reserves with insufficient net assets to counter losses on patient services over a period of more than six years. Recently, a number of healthcare organizations have closed medical departments or ended services, citing finances and staffing. Today, we're speaking with Tamara Johnson. Tamara is the Vice President of Quality and Risk Management at Phoenix Children's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona, where she provides oversight to both the quality and risk management departments. This includes organization-wide risk reduction initiatives and strategic direction. Prior to joining Phoenix Children's Hospital, she served as Senior Director of Patient Safety and Risk Management at Children's Hospitals and Clinics of Minnesota, where she was instrumental in the development and implementation of an integrated quality and risk management program. Tamara has been a frequent presenter on risk management, quality improvement, and patient family-centered care to healthcare organizations on a national level. Let's talk with Tamara about risk in healthcare. Tamara, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Scott. It's good to be here.
0: Well, before we begin our conversation about risk and healthcare, let's go back to the beginning. How did you get into healthcare, and where you are today?
1: Sure. Well, it was a few years ago. I started, went to a school to for um, in nursing and got my undergrad in nursing and started out working in a hospital setting as a nurse and did that for a few years and then. From there, I actually went into risk management and started working for an insurance company doing uh, medical malpractice insurance, and so I was uh, doing risk consulting and continued uh, doing that, and that was around the time frame where the Institute of Medicine report came out about the number of patients that uh, suffered a medical injury and had uh, serious consequences including death. And so there was really the launch of the patient safety movement at that time and and that was of great interest to me. and, And I started to really make the connection between risk and quality and patient safety And then from there, I moved into uh, several roles working for uh, hospital systems as well as uh, uh, medical office um, practices and did that and and went back to the consulting side for a period of time and, and then missed the provider and hospital work. And so I'm back now in the hospital setting working for a pediatric health system. And here I am.
0: Well, you've had some experience and cover a lot of big areas in terms of risk management, both on the clinical and the non-clinical side and in, in insurance. I'd like to start by getting your thoughts on what is risk in healthcare. Risk as a topic could and usually does mean different things to different people and likely depending on a job or a role or organization type or a location. So thinking about it broadly and then maybe narrowing in, how do you view and think about risk in healthcare? Uh, what is it to you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a good place to start. You know, I think when we hear the word risk, I think there's a lot of, you know, immediate thoughts that come to mind regardless of what we do, and they're likely not always positive. And and it's interesting when you really look at risk and you realize what it is, you know, it's something that we're all faced with every day you know, personally and, and professionally. And so everything about what we do is really, I think, calculated risks. And we probably don't spend much time thinking about, you know, the everyday stuff, which is okay. But I think working in, in risk management, you know, it's taught me to really think, you know, and try to anticipate risk, just knowing that that it's a given. And, and, and one thing that you know, I've appreciated is that, you know, those there are those risks that you need to accept. And you know, we take risks driving to work every day. And many of those risks produce meaningful outcomes. We get to work on time, but they're also very, you know, calculated. And that's true, you know, in healthcare and, and likely any industry. And so, you know, my job and, and the team that I work with is to really, you know, assess the risk in our environments and make decisions about, are those acceptable? Are those, you know, areas that, that we need to attend to mitigate, monitor, you know, and sometimes we even work to, to remove the risk, but not all the time. Mm-hmm. So it, it takes, I, I think it spans, you know, a gamut of a lot of different things. We try to look at, you know, the, the risk. Is it is it a risk for our patients? Is it a risk for our family, for our staff, for ourselves? Is it a reputational risk? Is it a financial risk? And, and you know, to think about it and segregate it in in categories that make sense for, you know, the environment that you're in.
0: And that's a perfect, it gets right into the, because I was writing this down as you were talking, I was thinking, are there different types of risk variations. And as, as you were mentioning patient, family, and staff, I was written down different types or categories or levels. And I know that people may look at this at risk based on where they're working, their organization, maybe their department, or even their geographic location around the country. If you kind of categorize in patient, family, staff, reputation, and then there are a lot of others. I mean, when you touched on uh, financial, is it a good approach to categorize and kind of look at these in a, in a variation approach to then put into a perspective to then begin to address?
1: I I think it is. And, and one, one thing that I try to do and encourage our, our team to do is to really assess it, you know, you know, based on, you know, two quadrants. And so, you know, how often, you know, is, is the risk, is it constant? Is it periodic? You know, what's the frequency? And then what's the severity of it? And you can use a lot of different risk management tools. There's a lot out there. You can just Google it and and you'll come up with, you know, many. And they're likely all very good. But I think sometimes it's easy to get embedded in the tool and the nuances of it and sometimes the academics of it. But for me, just the frequency severity scale is is probably the most practical and the most useful. And in our my experience I would say probably the the best tool that has, you know, sustained in terms of, you know, just it's it's always applicable. You can always put risk into a frequency severity perspective.
0: Why is it important to think about risk? Not just to think about it but to actively plan and prepare for it.
1: Well, I think, you know, most of the catastrophic events that occur whether it's, you know, a very unfortunate patient injury, whether it's a financial, you know, consequence is because the risk wasn't anticipated. And and so, you know, the only way that you can you can address it and and mitigate it is to identify it And respond to it and so you know that's why you just you really have to have a risk mindset in order to do that and you know one of the things that I've always tried I try to do is to teach others to have that same risk mindset you know I work for an organization that is a large health system you know with several locations and and We have a risk team that can't cover everything. And so I've always said, you know, one of the things that we need to do well is to teach people to fish, to teach people to recognize risk, because we need everyone out there to have the same kind of eyes and ears that we do really assessing risk and making decisions about what they need to do with it. So it's really just trying to mitigate that element of surprise.
0: And that takes into consideration, you know, when you, you're mentioning a lot of the different areas and teaching people these different things and having the, having the mindset to it. For a long time, from, in my opinion, risk has always really been focused or, or talked about from a compliance or a coding and billing, quality and safety were a lot of the times the focus and got a lot of the attention. Recently, there's been a lot of conversation about IT and cybersecurity. Where do you think risk is in medical care? Where should medical care professionals and organizations be watching or monitoring? Uh, When you talk about catastrophic events, patient safety, uh, you know, with your background in nursing, but there's also a financial ramification for a lot of decisions that are made if organizations are beginning to look at Patients that are coming in from the revenue and the expense perspective, they're looking at doing strategic uh, initiatives. Where is, where can risk be viewed throughout an organization?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think just knowing again, that risk is, is everywhere is one thing, but sometimes that doesn't, you know, make it very practical then because it's like, well, where do you start? Mm -hmm. And, and I think, you know, it's very helpful to consider your data you know, look at your own internal benchmarks around, you know, what issues have have occurred in the past? Where do you have high levels of change? Because we know that with change in and of itself really doesn't matter what the change even is, there's inherent risk with that. So, you know, where do you have processes changing? Where are you, do you have a, a, a new site that you're building or that you'll be onboarding, or maybe you're, you know, removing a practice or, you know, to some degree, your scope of service is changing. There's risk. There's inherent risk with that. External benchmarks, I think, are are really helpful. Network and and find out, you know, what's happening outside of my organization, because if it can happen somewhere else, there's strong probability that it could probably happen in my own setting. Mm-hmm. And so really just having a, an openness to, to all of that and and then using that data to guide you, but not in a absolute way. It's really it's a data point.' It's, it's a piece of information. But it doesn't replace the value of, you know, getting out in your own environment and really walking around, listening to people, and responding to your own situations and your own signals that are in your own environment.
0: A lot of times, risk can be viewed or engaged as a, as like a kind of a reactive model, reactive process. So when uh, you mentioned high levels of change and looking at staffing and if you're going to open up a new department or division or open up a new facility. Those are things, if they're being planned for, how can risk and how should risk be factored into the, to the prep work, the planning that's taking place in advance that I would expect that might be able to help mitigate or manage some of those unanticipated events. If you're able to anticipate in advance, how can that be worked into something in advance of that uh, project going forward?
1: Yeah. Well I think it's important to, you know, gather your stakeholders, your subject matter experts, and if your role is is the risk manager or, you know, some kind of administrator leader role is to listen to people that are doing the work and understand from their perspective, you know, what are their concerns. And that's likely a very good and, and likely very accurate gauge for you. I think, again, the you know, frequency severity model is very helpful. There's other tools like a failure mode effects analysis, an FMEA, that can be very helpful. Those are more detailed, something that you might want to do with, with already recognized high risk procedure, if that's what it is, and then you know to determine where does this fall. A lot of times we think about, and in the space of healthcare, if you just ask someone, where do you think the highest risks are? People are likely to point to those high acuity, clinical acuity environments like your ICUs. And it's interesting that when we look, up, look at claim statistics and where accidents happen most, they're not in those highest acuity areas. They're you know, in those moderate and sometimes even low acuity areas. And why is that? It's probably because people are thinking that they're in an area where risk is, is, is low. It's not first and foremost. It's not top of mind. And that's when it's most dangerous is when it's not top of mind for people. And so that's why, again, helping to really ensure that everyone models that mindset looking for and responding to risk.
0: I would think that with your example of the ICU and, and other places, it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's top of mind. So if a patient's being seen in the ICU, that's really The entire focus of the ICU is they are looking at every risk scenario, every contingency that patient's being monitored on a very extreme basis. Whereas, and there's other parts of the organization that, if it's not in that kind of high critical access period, it's kind of the out of sight, out of mind. It's again going back to the the gambling that something may not happen, and that's where some things do slip in from time to time.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: You mentioned stakeholders and getting those people to the table if, if you're doing planning or just in general, who are the stakeholders and actors that are typically involved? How do or can they address risk? And then on the flip side of that, who should be involved?
1: Of course, it's going to depend on the environment that you're working in. But I would say as a rule, anytime that you can engage the frontline, as I said before, the people that are doing the work, they're the ones that are going to be able to give you the most helpful information and cues about where the risks are, because they're the ones, as I said, doing doing the work. They likely lived with these concerns for probably a while, and they know about it. I w- I'm I'm not suggesting to you know not tap into leadership as well, but if it's in the absence of you know not including the the front line. I think you'll really miss some some vital information.
0: There can be a tendency for risk to be overwhelming. So what can individuals and groups do to make it more manageable and easier to address, like putting it into bite-sized pieces? So if an individual or organization wants to consider an approach and plan for risk, or better yet, do it, How could they? So I'm thinking like a plan and a process. You know, some of the things that you had talked about uh, previously with you know the two quadrants of frequency and severity, looking at data and external benchmarks, the detail of the failure mode analysis. You know, are there ways to, if I'm a doctor's office or a practice or even an organization, a large organization, to view and take a perspective on this that they can address it in, in multiple ways.
1: I think that this is key and this is something that I would say I've probably learned the hard way just because earlier when we were talking about that risk is ever present there's there's a lot of risks and again I don't think that there's any industry that you know is an ex- an exception to that and so it's it's critical that you scale it. And so for me, that's really meant prioritizing what we believe to be the highest risks and coming up with that list of whether it's a top three, top five, top 10, but a a disciplined list or prioritized list of what we think are the highest priorities from a risk perspective and I'll say that it's, it's important to maintain the the discipline because what we've found too, is it can be very tempting to, you know, (laughs) something else pops up and Mm -hmm. that gets your attention. And all of a sudden you forget about what was your top three and, and maybe that's where you need to be, but maybe it's not. And so just having that discipline to, if, We don't want to be too rigid that we fail to see something new because it wasn't in our top three. But I think just using that that reasoned approach to say, okay, is there a reason that we need to change what our focus is? But what we try to do is to have, you know, as an organization, as a large healthcare system, what are our enterprise risk points? What are our prioritized risk points as an enterprise? And from an enterprise perspective, what we really need to do is to ensure that what those are, are tied to our strategic plan because the strategic plan drives the operation for the organization. And we want to make sure that that operational plan is successful. And so we really need to know what those risks are that could derail that, that strategic plan. And so those that, that top three or whatever that top list is should really align to what your strategic plan is. And then at the, the local operational level, each leader needs to have their own sense of, for my area, what's, what are my highest risks? Do I know as a leader and then, very importantly, do my staff know? Because one of the best ways to you know, derail uh, effective work around how are we doing with our risk mitigation plan is to keep it in a silo. And so be very transparent about it. Make sure that all of your staff can speak to it at any time. If there's a change in it, everyone should know about it.
0: I love hearing your point about including risk in the strategic plan. As somebody who myself uh, came up and got into healthcare because of a strategic planning class that I took in business school and came up through strategy and strategic planning, I absolutely agree with that. And I love hearing about a strategic plan. That got me thinking about timing. And so usually if you go through a strategic planning process for an organization, you do that you know, once a year and you'll have some touch points throughout the year, but you'll view and you'll look at, at that strategic plan. How do you approach risk from a timing perspective? I, I feel confident in saying, well, you know, the sooner the better. Don't put off till, you know, the future. Let's start planning on risk and let's putting some things in place today. But is it something that if it's included in the strategic plan, are you and your team or the local groups that are on the front line, are they looking at something or are they touching it, considering it twice a year, monthly, you know, quarterly, weekly? Uh, how, how would they approach that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if, if it's identified as being important enough to, you know, be on your, your list of, of high priorities, I think that, you know, it needs an action plan really right away. If it's, if it's a high priority, it's something that I think you should never sit on. If you can sit on it, it's probably not a high priority. And so what we do once it's identified, is to then, you know, make decisions about what is it that we need to accomplish? What's our objective here? And then what's our work to achieve the goal that we we identify? And it's something that we work on daily. We monitor and discuss not formally every day, um, but there's there's work being done on it every day, and then usually at least once a month there's a report that would go up to an oversight committee around the progress for that, or or barriers because that's the other reality. Everything isn't going to be progress, and sometimes the discussion is rather about the barrier that exists, and then. What's our job as leaders to remove that barrier?
0: What are some potential barriers that are, because I was actually was thinking about this in terms of pitfalls and threats or, you know, obstacles and barriers that, that should be kept in top of mind that may have folks not getting off the starting block. So, you know, one that as we were talking comes to mind, it may be like complacency or indifference or just not knowing what to do and where to start and how to go about it
1: well i think this is where you really need to lean into your your leadership team because if this is identified work that's critical then i think it's it's non-negotiable and it needs to be written into whether maybe you know not job descriptions But if you think about goals, that typically, you know, an individual will have goals that everyone's working on. And these are things that likely should be part of that improvement process. So whether it's an individual or it's a team, and then an individual's performance or a team's performance is really evaluated based on whether or not those goals are being achieved. And so you have to hardwire that into the accountability structure. Otherwise, it just becomes a nice thing to do that Is likely not going to happen. And so it's, we've, the only way that we've found that we can be successful with that and then to sustain that work, which is the other objective, it's not to just get it started, but it's to sustain it, is, you know, to really build it into the accountability structure.
0: If something does happen and the best laid plans and everything's put into place and we have tried to anticipate, if something does happen how would one respond or how would a group respond if something does does come through
1: yeah and that will happen and and i think one of the in our business you know the first thing is to make sure that the people that are involved are taken care of both from a physical standpoint as well as as emotional and that can be difficult, but that's typically our hierarchy is that people are taken care of. The next thing that we do is, is really fact-finding. We try not to do anything that isn't based on facts. So we're not making assumptions about what happened, but we're taking the time and effort to really do the analysis and investigation. And then we bring that information to the table with, again, your subject matter experts, your stakeholders, and you're identifying uh, in that analysis what happened, what, you know, what were the contributing factors, what was the root cause, and, and then you're making decisions about how do we ensure that this doesn't happen again, and maybe that information is going to reveal to you that you have new risks or maybe you have risks that you identified before, but you weren't thinking about in the same way. But now based on the event that occurred, it's, it's illuminated, in you know, new findings. And so you're approaching that risk in a different way. And I think it's it's really important that people don't see that as a failure, that we failed to identify this correctly the first time. Oh, yeah. okay. This is part of the, the evolution of, of risk management. It's, it's a continual process. And if we fail to, to learn and make adjustments, that's just it. We'll, we'll fail at, at that point. So to accept that it's fluid and it's constant is just it's part of the journey.
0: Looking back through recent history from a risk standpoint, what was expected versus unexpected in healthcare and what could have been done differently
1: yeah I think in healthcare we we learn so much I mean when I think about ten years ago we used to see things that ha- happened and just think it's there's no way that we could prevent this and I think the the more that we learn about risk management quality process improvement, the more we realize that there are actually ways that we can at least mitigate that risk, if not even prevent the situation from occurring. And so maybe today we've, we've realized that w- there's there's avenues to, to prevent what we 10 years ago thought was um, not preventable. And so it's just, it's being open, I think, to that. And it's being open to challenging the status quo. And that's where I think leaning into your external colleagues, you know, being a part of your professional associations and using those groups to really understand what are others doing. We take no pride in reinventing the wheel. We really try not to do that. And so if someone else has, is, is doing something that we think could be really helpful, we're all about you know adopting that or at least considering that as an option. And in the, the same spirit, we try to be very willing to share anything that we've learned with our, our colleagues and, and healthcare community.
0: Now looking forward during this year maybe even beyond what do you see as potential issues in healthcare what are you anticipating even in your in your own work how can individuals and organizations or how are you anticipating and being prepared
1: You know I think whether it's healthcare or again any other industry or even in our own personal lives there's just there the competing demands are unrelenting and, and I think it can be overwhelming and, and I think maintaining that focus is probably going to continue to be one of the most difficult things and also one of the areas that I think can really you know, get us off track. So not trying not to be overwhelmed by what those are, but seeing those as, as opportunities to really reassess and to pause and to be thoughtful about how we move forward. I think that's key.
0: Do you think when you're talking about maintaining focus and being overwhelmed, have you gotten of sense or noticed any change in approaches or abilities or skill sets, you know, how people view things since we've just come through a pandemic and things that none of us have ever experienced before. Most of us probably never experienced before anything like this, a different type of approach and people more open to, to considering things and and being prepared and, and saying like, well, we, we need to take a look at this now and, and keeping that focus in some of these areas.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think after the pandemic things have felt very differently because I think they are very different. You know, our work settings look different, People are working differently. They're working in different places. And one of the things that I think we initially struggled with in coming back when people could come back into the office, of course, healthcare never shut down if you were doing direct patient care, but the administrative spaces did look very different, and, and, they, and they still do now. And so one of the things that I think we're challenged with is how do we keep the connectivity? Because even though we can physically come together, I think we've realized that there are efficiencies gained from utilizing virtual communication methods. And, and yet we know that there's disadvantages with that too. And so how do we keep that connectivity? And I wouldn't say that I have all the answers, but I think just, again, knowing that that is also a risk. So we're trying to really look at how do we maximize this hybrid model that we now live in and, and identify those activities where it's really not going to lend itself to, a, a you know, a, a virtual format. We need people in person. But then for those activities where we where that's not required, we we don't require it. Because we like to give our staff the flexibility, and I think the marketplace is demanding that. I think you know that's another risk point too, is just your human resources. I've read recently that you know people are leaving the healthcare field in record-setting paces. We know firsthand, these are oftentimes hard to recruit positions. And it's really critical that we keep a fl- flexible mindset about the work environment that we are bringing people into. So all of those things, I think, are challenges for us. But again, they don't have to be a barrier. But I do think it's, it's how you approach it.
0: Well, that's a great point to conclude our conversation. Tamara, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts today.
1: Thank you, Scott. I appreciate the invitation.
0: Thank you for listening to the Risky Healthcare Business Podcast. You can listen to all episodes from the Resource Center page of the Spring Parker website, springparker.com, or click the listen link in the show notes to listen and subscribe for free on your platform of choice. And remember, accelerating healthcare performance is achieved through creativity, not just productivity.